I'm going to assume in the video that it goes without saying that you may now be seated. But uh, if anyone happened to be standing at home for the doxology, you may now be seated. Uh, as we continue our sermon series in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, you may have noticed that this week is about the emptiness of work, labor, or toil. And uh, there's a lot to say about this. And the good news is we will be doing a Facebook Live Monday. So everything I don't get to say here, I can address on Monday. And if you have questions, you know, feel free to comment as you go. But full disclosure, we are recording this service on Saturday. So I will not be responding in real time to comments that you make uh, on Facebook or YouTube as we're broadcasting Sunday. Um, and I just wanted to mention that several of you, not many, but a few have always requested a Saturday service, and I want you to know that this is my idea of a compromise. I'm worshiping here on Saturday and showing it to you on Sunday, so there you go. Um, but I wanted to share with you, so there are a couple different ways that people look at work, and one that really jumped out at me uh, was captured by this author named David Graeber. He wrote a book about modern work, and he concludes that most people are unhappy with their work, he got uh, nearly a majority of people he interviewed to admit that, yes, they think their work is uh, boring, needless, pointless. Uh, they don't enjoy doing it. They get no pleasure from going to work every day. And even thinking about it kind of bums them out. And he said, you know, I, after all of my research, I suspect that the number that I even got was a little low. I think it was uh, 34% was what he got people to admit. I would imagine it makes a difference if he was asking them on the site uh, of their job. But uh, in one example he shares in his book, uh, it's about a German man who shares his thoughts on his job. Now I'm going to read to you the entire account. Now this is a first person account from a man in Germany. And he says this, the German military has a subcontractor that does their IT work. So for you visual people, German military, subcontractor that does their IT work. The IT firm has a subcontractor that does their logistics. One more peg down. The logistics firm has a subcontractor that does their personnel management, and I work for that company. Now, let's say a soldier wants to move two offices down the hall. Instead of just carrying his computer over there, he has to fill out a form. The IT contractor will get the form. People will read it and approve it and forward it to the logistics firm. The logistics firm will then uh, approve the moving down the hall and will request personnel from us. The office people in my company will then do whatever they do, and now I come in. I get an email that says, be at barracks C at times, uh, be at barracks B at times C. Usually, these barracks are 62 to 310 miles away from my home. So I will get a rental car. I take the rental car, drive to the barracks, let dispatch know that I've arrived, fill out a form, unhook the computer, load the computer into a box, seal the box, have a guy from the logistics firm carry the box to the next room, where I unseal the box, fill out another form, hook the computer, call dispatch to let them know how long I took, get a couple of signatures, take my rental car back home, send dispatch uh, a letter with all of the paperwork, and then I get paid. So instead of a soldier carrying his computer for five meters, uh, you can convert that on Google if you need to, uh, two people drive for a combined six to ten hours, fill out around 15 pages of paperwork, and spend a good 400 euros of taxpayer money. Now, he warns, he said, this might sound like a classic example of military red tape, government waste. 
But he said, what I want to remind you of is no one in that story works for the government. Those are all private sector jobs. The logistics firm, the IT firm, the personnel management, that's all private sector waste. And he said, you know, talking to this guy is just one where you realize just how pointless a job can be, or three or four jobs. And I had my own experience of this. When I was 15, I got my first job ever at Kroger, which I'm sure they would take me back now, um, especially the past couple of weeks. Um, but they had so little work for me to do, but had already agreed to hire me. And because of union laws, they had to put me to work for two to four hours a week as a minimum. So I had two to four hours a week doing facing. Now, there's stocking and there's facing. Now, I wasn't allowed to carry the cans. What I had to do was walk up and down every aisle and turn every can, make sure they were all pushed to the front of the row and turn every can. And my first experience with work was that it is pointless. What an unnecessary waste. Uh, and at the time, I got uh, 5 an hour for that. Um, so what I want to talk about this morning is the emptiness of work. Now, there's a couple different things that can mean, and uh, we're going to look at it from actually two different ways. All my illustrations lean in one direction. But there are two competing and incorrect views of work. And each of us lean toward one or the other. So there's two competing and both equally incorrect views of work. And everyone listening will lean toward one or the other. The first is this. You work to live. Um, You consider work to be drudgery. You do enough of it to get it out of the way and live the rest of your life. That's clearly our German sub, 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 subcontractor. Uh, in his situation, and you may even hear that line of thought or what you think being affirmed in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, we already preached in chapter 2, but 2, 4 to 23, and 4, 2 through 6, um, there's a commentator who concludes this way after reading that. He says, Ecclesiastes concludes that toil is vanity and so wretched that death can seem appealing. That's what it says in Ecclesiastes uh, uh, 2 and 4. There it even says, you know, when he thinks about all his toil and all his labor, he envies a stillborn child. Now, that's really severe language that I don't think anyone that I cited, I certainly didn't feel that way when I was facing cans at Kroger. Uh, but that is the extreme. You work to live. It's drudgery. You get it out of the way. But on the other side of work to live, that's uh, an incorrect view of work, biblically speaking, that we're going to talk about. But on the other side of that is the live to work. This idea of work is who I am. I am my profession. I build my life around my career. Some people spend more money uh, on their education and credentialing than they do on their house. Um, in fact, that's becoming increasingly more common. Um, and, uh, you know, on one hand, you may hear that and it sounds like something else in Ecclesiastes, where it, it praises work and it says good things about work. Uh, Dan Doriani, in his book, Work, it's Purpose, Dignity, and Transformation summarizes uh, Ecclesiastes' teaching by saying it is good to realize our potential and find fulfillment at work. And so the question then is how can Ecclesiastes teach both of these things at once? One is work to live. You do what it takes to get it out of the way because it's drudgery. And on the other hand, you find your purpose, meaning, and fulfillment through carrying out your work. Uh, And the answer, and this is what you will learn as you go through wisdom literature, which is Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the book of James is that the path of wisdom lies in between those two extremes. And so he will cite both sides and say, you know, 
uh, contemplating with it, but when it lands, we'll see where it is. And so work, like everything else under the sun, is given to us by God as a gift, but can only be recognized as a gift when placed in its proper context. And so uh, I'm going to read to you from three different passages in Ecclesiastes, which uh, for you uh, Facebookers, I will comment the scriptures at the appropriate time so that they are in front of you. Uh, For those listening uh, here in person, I will read them to you. Uh, And if you want to turn with me, the first one is in Ecclesiastes 3, and I would invite you to join me in prayer. O Lord, your your, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us grace to receive your truth in faith and love, and strength to follow on the path that you have set before us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, from Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, going to verse 14. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. A person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he asks, he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is a vanity and an unhappy business. In chapter 5, verse 18, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So there are three points that I want to make for you, and uh, the first that we want to talk about is this, is that human labor only finds its meaning when it's part of a larger story. And that's what Ecclesiastes will eventually get to. In fact, Ecclesiastes always reminds us of the shortness, the shallowness of our story by saying this phrase, under the sun. It's saying everything that we can see as finite beings, as finite creatures, is what falls under the sun. And when things are considered in that context of under the sun, in the temporal, finite realm, they seem meaningless. However, with the context that the gospel provides to us, uh, we see our work and everything in our lives as part of a bigger story. And so futility finds its way into work when work becomes an end in and of itself. When something under the sun is only serving that which is under the sun, futility surfaces. That's where we see at the beginning of Ecclesiastes, he's considering all of his work and all of his labor and what will happen after he passes away, and it it all seems futile to him because all his riches will die with him, and he has no control over his wealth after it goes away. We preached on that a few weeks ago. I encourage you to go listen to that again if you need a reminder on wealth. There's a famous Christian pastor uh, and teacher in the 20th century named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he actually was a doctor, uh, a medical doctor before he became a theologian and preacher. And he said, uh, 
many people that he met in his profession, their tombstone would read, born a man, died a doctor. And what he means by that is particularly what he was seeing. Now, obviously, you know, now we would say born a person, died a doctor. Um, and now it's transformed into even more professions. Born a, a person, died a teacher. Born a person, even died a pastor. Where your whole identity becomes so wrapped up in your profession that all of your sense of self, all of your competence, all of your confidence is tied to your success or your failure at work. Now, in more traditional cultures throughout the world, uh, work is considered a means to an end. The greater end is family or community, and work is a way to serve your family or community well, and you know that you're doing good at work if your family and your community are served well. Now, to you that, now, if you, if you kind of bumped on that first thing I said, this might sound better to you, but that also has its finite, under the sun nature to it. But in Western culture, most of us have learned that work is an end in and of itself. We're told from the time that we're little that you can be anything you want to be. You decide what to be, and then you go be it. All of our sense of self-worth is derived through our work. Uh, And work then becomes our identity. And in this mentality, self-worth is earned based on performance. Now that... If you've listened to me preach for a while, that should trigger something for you. Anytime a Christian is basing their self-worth, their dignity, anything like that on their performance, whether it's in work, whether it's in spirituality, I don't care where it is. When your life's meaning is based on your performance, it is legalism. And Tim Keller sums it up by saying this. He says, when work is your identity, then there are two possible outcomes. If you're successful at it, it goes to your head. And if you're a failure at it, it goes to your heart. And so if you have made work into an idol, if you have made work all that your life is about, if you've made your profession, your title, those letters that come after your name, all that your identity is about, then you will have a raging ego if you're good at your job. And you will be crushed to the point of despair if if you're not performing well in your job. And neither of those are a gospel way to live. And in his book, which I would commend if you find yourself with some free time at home, uh, which you should um, in the next few weeks, uh, in his book, Every Good Endeavor, Tim Keller says this. He says, the story we have to put our work into in order for it to make sense is this. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And it's here that now at, at College Hill Presbyterian, you may have heard this referred to as the four circles or the big story. And I'm sure someone can provide us with a link there if you've not heard us talk about that yet. Uh, but what we're talking about here is that that is the basic pattern. Every, every chapter of the Bible fits into one section of that story. In fact, each interaction throughout our lives will fit into some element of that story. And what we mean is that work is created by God as a gift to humanity and now many people think that work is a curse. It's always been a curse. But work actually exists back in Genesis chapter 2, which is before the fall, what we call the fall, uh, the first sin of humankind, showing that work was not designed to be a curse. It's not designed to be a burden. It's not a product of the fall. However, once we see that sin enter in, we see that work does not return equal yield for equal effort. 
And so work becomes harder. It becomes less fruitful. But we as Christians uh, are redeemed. Uh, Our sin is taken on by Jesus. Our futility is nailed to the cross with him. And our lives are given purpose. And therefore, everything we enter into is about redeeming and restoring that original purpose in creation. So for work, that means we are bringing back dignity to every field of work, not simply not just, you know, obviously not ministry. And it's working toward an ultimate redemption where we believe things will be made right again. Now, you may think this is lofty thinking that doesn't really work in a cubicle very well. Um, to think that of your human labor uh, finding its purpose in a larger story. But it actually makes a huge difference which story you're telling yourself on a day-to-day basis and what story you're reflecting on. And uh, my favorite illustration, which is probably a little outdated um, by you know just a few centuries, but um, there's a story about uh, three bricklayers who are laying brick. And uh, a man walks up and asks the first one, uh, you know, what are you doing? What are you working on? He says, well, I'm laying brick. And he goes to the second one. He says, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm building a wall. And, and then he goes to the third one. And the third one says, I am building a house of worship that will stand for hundreds of years for people to gather every week as a community to glorify God together and uh, took great joy in his work. Now, what's the difference? All three of them are doing the exact same work probably at the same speed, for the same amount of money. One of them finds incredible purpose, lasting joy, and meaning in what he's doing. And one of them sees a little bit of the picture, but is still like, yeah, it's a wall's a wall. You know, it's a brick wall. Anybody could do this. And the first one is just stuck in drudgery. Now, I'm here to tell you that any job can feel like just laying brick, and any job can feel like you are building a cathedral. It all depends on the story in which you are participating. If you are participating, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you are participating in God's story of redemption for humanity and for his creation. And therefore, you can view your job in that context. And so that's the first thing, is that human labor finds its meaning as part of a larger story. The second thing that I want to call your attention to is this, is that all good work is God's work. Now, there's been this stratification in the church for a long time that I occasionally hear where people believe that uh, in order to really be serving God with your work, you have to do ministry. Uh, I, I know people who are nurses who feel like they have to find ministry on top of their job because they're not serving God by healing sick people. Um, which, by the way, if you go through that um, mentality, you're going to have a hard time reasoning about Jesus' work in the Gospels because he spends a fair amount of time healing sick people. Uh, But the gospel story that we're all participating in, that creation, fall, redemption, and renewal, uh, is the story that gives all work dignity and value. Now, throughout Scripture, we're told time and time again that God loves his people, God loves his creation, and that God feeds his people. God feeds his creation, he tends to his creation, he provides food and water and sun and rain and all of these things. And Martin Luther, the reformer, uh, hundreds of years ago, he looked at that and he noticed that uh, the way that God fulfills that promise to care for and love all of his creation is through what he called ordinary work. He said, I wouldn't have milk on my table this morning uh, at breakfast if it weren't for a girl out milking the cow. 
in the country and putting it in a bottle early in the morning. And then someone driving a transport to bring it into the city. And then a grocer putting it on a shelf and selling it to me or delivering it to me. And he says, those are all what he called ordinary jobs. But he said, those are actually the instruments through which God carries out his promise to love and feed and care for all his people. Uh, and so he looked at that and saw uh, tremendous dignity. And so in the modern terms, uh, many of that, much of that still works. Farmers who grow food, truck drivers who supply our food, grocery workers who put it on the shelves, etc. God delivers his good gifts to his people through the work given to other people. And it's in that sense that all uh, morally sound work is God's work. There are professions that I would say uh, aren't redeemed, and we're not talking about that. And so then the question is, since all work, no matter what your vocation is, uh, you are doing some aspect of God's work. And then the question always comes up, how do I do my job Christianly? How do I do my job as a Christian? And Martin Luther actually had an answer to this question, too. And he said, you know, if you were, um, uh, if you were a Christian shoemaker, he said, you don't practice being a Christian shoemaker by etching little crosses onto every shoe that you make. He said, you do it by making really good shoes, and you make them affordable so that people can buy them, that you can have a profit, that you can pay your employees well and care for them, not do the minimum to get by, but invest in flourishing of your employees, invest in the flourishing of the people who will buy your shoes. And by that, you are contributing uh, to, um, to the greater good. Now, I don't know a lot of uh, shoemakers in the 21st century, but... Uh, you know, just for instance, if you're an airline pilot, uh, we don't need you to skywrite Bible verses in the air. What we need you to do is land the plane well. That's how you serve people best. That's how we carry out God's work in your profession. Uh, and if you're a farmer in the 21st century, you sell great food, the best food you can produce at the best price you can produce. And in fact, uh, what should strike you now in terms of where we are uh, in this period of 2020 uh, is what is currently considered uh, an essential job, which is a term most of us had never really pondered before a week ago. What is an essential job? It is not the jobs that I heard my friends talking about in high school. Isn't that interesting? All of my friends talked about what they wanted to do when they grew up. I talked about it. And none of us uh, were talking about being uh, grocers or custodians or truck drivers. And those are now the most essential jobs in our country for the foreseeable future. And what this should do is remind you, one, to get rid of any sense of snobbery uh, about one job being greater or lesser than another and certainly now you can see the fruit of the labor uh, in jobs like that. And if you work in a pharmacy, if you're a medic, if you're a custodian, if you stock grocery shelves, it has never been more important for you to be good at what you do. And if you're a Christian, how much more? If you see this as the love of your neighbor to wash your hands thoroughly, to stock things well, to make sure uh, things are where people can access them and find them, and things are in stock and people will be safe having a shopping experience, it has never been more important for the human race for you to do what you do well. The stakes could not be higher. And so all work as a Christian 
is God's work. So the way that you can kind of refocus on your work is, one, by telling that greater story, by always seeing whatever work you find yourself doing as part of the larger story of God's redemption and recreation, but also that realize that all work that is done well helps someone else. No matter what you do, even if you feel like I'm at a computer all day just typing numbers in and sending out emails, uh, theoretically, if someone's paying you to do it, you are creating work that is meaningful, that helps someone else do their job. And if you're part of a company that is helping another company do something well or helping customers directly, you are still serving God in your capacity. And so all, all good work, all moral work is God's work. Uh, and human labor finds its meaning in the larger story. And the final point is this, is Ecclesiastes uh, doesn't really have that fine of a distinction. When it talks about work and toil, work includes all forms of toil. And so uh, in 9.10 of Ecclesiastes, you'll find it says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. And so whatever you are doing, even if it isn't your job that you're paid for 40 hours a week, what it's not saying is for 40 hours a week, you work really hard, you serve people well, you love people, and then you get to clock out of being a Christian. It's like, no, you, you don't get to – you clock out of your vocation, but you still carry those principles with you to whatever work you do. So the Bible does not distinguish between uh, work that you are paid to do and work that you do as a role in your family or your community. And you should not allow yourself to have that distinction either. So whatever work you find yourself doing, do it with all your might. And in this sense, Christians never really retire. In fact, in this sense, Christians never really even take a vacation. Yes, uh, your paid work may end, uh, but you still have an important role to play in the lives of others. So even if you're retired from your vocation, your calling as a Christian is still to love and serve God and your neighbor, and that part of your calling never goes away, and there will always be work for you to do. And now, to some of you, uh, that might sound exhausting, to know that human labor is completely unending, uh, but there is good news in that as well. From uh, early in Scripture, we are given the concept of the Sabbath. And it's designed as a gift. Now, there are two different views of the Sabbath based on how you work. If you're a type A, work-to-live type person, the Sabbath may seem like bad news. Because even when it was written, uh, and certainly in the 21st century, Sabbath means sacrificing productivity for enjoyment. If you, in the ancient Near East, were a farmer, you knew that if you went and worked out, worked out in the fields an extra day of the week, your crop would be at least one-seventh larger. That's one-seventh more money, more income, if you simply just take that extra day. And what God is asking for you to do on the Sabbath is to, you know what? You're going to sacrifice productivity. You're not going to work that day. We're going to create a rhythm uh, in order uh, for something greater. Now, for others, that doesn't sound like enough rest, right? So there's the people who are like, that's... That's way too much. I'm willing to do a quarter Sabbath or a half Sabbath. Uh, I've heard those expressions before, by the way, an hour of Sabbath uh, or tight 20-minute Sabbath. People treat it like a workout plan uh, where it gets a little smaller and fits into your day more easily. But for others, it doesn't sound like enough rest. And statistically speaking, most Americans do not take all of their vacation time, something like 
do not take all the vacation time that they are given. And generally, Americans like vacation. But we don't want to be seen as slackers. There's this inherent work ethic in our culture. In fact, we've seen the backfire of it. In Silicon Valley, they started introducing unlimited off time. And what they've found is that everyone wants to figure out how much off time other people are taking and do a little bit less than that. And it becomes this oppressive cycle where people with unlimited off time take less time off than people with finite work time off because people with finite are at least told it's okay to have this much time off. Uh, and so we have invented a cycle as Americans where we work really hard, typically during the school year, even to the point of burnout, and then we try to get it all back in one or two weeks of vacation in the summer. If that sounds familiar to you, if you're looking forward to escaping uh, your quarantine and having a vacation, there's good and bad news in here for you. One, this is the rhythm that many of us live by, but very few of us actually find it satisfying. To work for 11 months and two weeks and take two weeks off is not going to quite be restorative for you. Instead, what God has in mind is a Sabbath, one in every seven, a rhythm where you are resting every seven days. Uh, And Sabbath is not, it doesn't just mean time off from your work, but it means actively pursuing rest, actively pursuing enjoyment and pleasure in life, and actively engaging in worship. And so we're not talking about Sabbath being a time off from your duties or just your work, but an active pursuit of rest. And many of us have been quarantined for nearly two weeks now, and we find more ways to busy ourselves. I've seen more people do puzzles in the last two weeks uh, than I've ever seen in my life. Uh, I've seen lots of people pour themselves into video games, binge-watching Netflix shows, getting into Zoom calls. And I know my type A uh, extroverts have Zoom calls booked 12 hours straight during the day. They'll squeeze you in if they've got time and literally bandwidth, uh, not emotional, but literally the Internet speed to do it. Um, But that is not actively pursuing rest. That's sitting back and saying, well, I'm not busy, so maybe rest will happen to me. And Sabbath is actually a charge to say, I'm going to actively pursue rest. I'm going to actively pursue enjoying life and entering into worship, which we're all doing together this morning. And so the questions for you this morning are this, you know, going back to our, our original premise, is if, uh, the, I, I guess here's the question, here's a better way to put it, does social distancing, does work from home, does time off drive you crazy? Are you pent up? Do you feel like a hummingbird in a shoebox being stuck in your own house? Is it driving you mad not to be there? It may be a sign that you are living to work, that you have not actively accepted God's invitation to pursue rest, to pursue enjoyment of life. Um, Or on the other hand, if you're, and this is where I fall, if you are completely unbothered by these changes. Uh, We were on a walk uh, earlier this week, and we saw neighbors that were more than six feet uh, across a double-lane street. And uh, they saw Susan, and they asked how she was doing. And she said, great. And they said, how's Mike? And she said, you know, I think he's living his best life. Uh, He is just in – that's not going to last, and I know that. But, you know, I'm a homebody. I love being at home. I don't mind working from home. Uh, But if you're completely unbothered by these latest changes – 
that it, it might be a sign for you that you don't recognize the God-given value in what you do. It, you don't recognize the God-given value in your interactions with your coworkers and in your work environment. If you're completely unbothered by what's going on, then you're not valuing your work enough. And if you're way too bothered by it, you're valuing work too much. And so, as we end this sermon, we're going to end in the way that we have uh, for this entire sermon series, which is to ask you to declutter one aspect of life and to focus on something else. And so here's the point for you to declutter. Whether you live to work or work to live, you are either over or underestimating the impact of work. And so the, the declutters, you really need to look at your attitude, your reflection on the past week, on what you're going to do for the rest of the day today, and say, uh, am I either overvaluing my work life, my toil, my engagements with others, or am I undervaluing them? And then, to focus, I would ask you uh, to consider this question. How would my work look differently if I really, really, truly understood that it is the way that God has given me to love him and to love other people? Now, we say that every week in church, that the greatest commandment from God is to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And what I'm telling you is that what God has given you in your work, in your everyday toil, is an opportunity to carry that out. That is the primary mechanism for many of us, which we are called to love God and to love our neighbor. Will you please join me in prayer?